Trigger warning, this interview contains violent language, specifically addressing the violence experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada. Let us begin with a land acknowledgement. I would like to acknowledge that CFRC in Kingston is situated on the traditional land of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, especially the Mississaugas of the Ojibwe. In 1701, the District 1 Spoon Treaty was negotiated with other nations where they were welcome to share hunting grounds. My hometown and birthplace is Hamilton, Ontario, which is also situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory under Treaty 3. My larger grandparents lived off the land and accumulated wealth from the land of North Lake Vale, Nova Scotia, which is situated on the traditional Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki Confederacy territory. I am a white colonial settler, and I come from a long history of white colonial settlers that have used the land of indigenous peoples to gain wealth and privilege. I also acknowledge there's ongoing violence, murder, and basic human rights being violated against indigenous people, including access to clean water and health care. I'm committed to fight colonial oppression and fighting for Indigenous rights. Hey everyone, you're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM. This is your host, Sadie McFadden. And today we are talking about the appointment of Canada's first Indigenous Governor General, Mary Simon. She's a Nook woman who has a very impressive resume. Uh, Simon represented the Inuit during the repatriation of the constitution and was involved in the creation of Nunavut. She was named Canada's first ambassador for the circumpolar affairs in 1994. Five years after that, she additionally became Canada's ambassador to Denmark, making her the first Inuk ambassador for the country. And today I am so happy to be joined by the Dean of the Faculty of Law, Dean Mark Walters to talk about this news. Um, he has researched extensively in public and constitutional law, legal history, and legal theory, with a special emphasis on the rights of Indigenous peoples, constitu institutional uh, structures, and the history of legal ideas. His work on the rights of Indigenous peoples focused on treaty relations between the Crown and Canada's Indigenous nations. He has been cited in the Supreme Court of Canada, as well as courts in Australia and New Zealand. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Yeah, for sure. So in order to um, make this topic a little bit more accessible, accessible for those who are not into politics, maybe, or know a lot about uh, Canadian history, um, can we start off with a few definitions for our listeners? Absolutely. Yeah, so could you explain what the Governor General is and um, explain it as both an individual, but also as this larger ambiguous political concept that is like written into our nation's history? Wherever the Queen has power in Canada, the Governor General has power as the Queen's representative in Canada. Yeah, so uh, the Constitution of Canada, the Constitution Act 1867, says that the Chief Executive of Canada and the Commander-in-Chief in chief of Canadian Forces is the Queen. Um, so that's an, an incredible statement. Um, the Queen, as head of the Executive, appoints the Prime Minister and all of the uh, federal cabinet ministers. So 
although the actual executive power is, as we know, in the hands of the prime minister and his or her cabinet, uh, the queen is the person who appoints them. Uh, and again, wherever the queen has power, it's the governor general who has that power, in fact, in Canada. Uh, I'll just continue quickly. Um, legislative power. So uh, legally speaking, uh, no law can be made by Parliament without the Queen signing on, royal assent uh, of the Queen. Once again, the Governor-General performs that role. And then uh, the third branch of state, judges, the, the judiciary. Uh, in Canada, the Governor-General, actually it does specify the Governor-General in uh, the Constitution rather than the Queen, uh, and certainly in statutes as well. The Governor-General appoints federally appointed judges, including judges on the Supreme Court of Canada. So what I'm, when you sit back and think about it, what an awesome amount of legal power the Queen and therefore the Governor General has. So the one thing the Queen does um, is appoint the Governor General. Um, once that Governor General is in place, that Governor General uh, uh, takes over. Now, the, the final thing I should say, of course, and, and this many people will appreciate, the Governor General has these powers, executive, legislative, and judicial, but only um, by constitutional convention, rather than law, exercises them on the advice of the Prime Minister of the day or other ministers of the Crown. And those, the Prime Minister, the, the, the Cabinet, must have and enjoy the support of the elected members of the House of Commons. The Governor General must act on the advice and consent of people who have the support of the elected members of parliament. Um, so there's a rough overview of the Office of Governor General. Does that sort of um, provide some background for you? Yeah, for sure. And I think our listeners will very much appreciate that. And um, could you also speak specifically about how the Governor General plays a role in the history between the relations between um, Indigenous peoples and the crown. In 1763, the crown issued this royal proclamation, royal proclamation of 1763, which is still regarded by indigenous people today as an important um, instrument protecting their rights. Though, though of course, as you won't be surprised, they, they, they interpret it differently than some of the judicial interpretations that have been given to it. Um, and so that was one, uh, one example of, of the Crown uh, stating clearly that um, in, in principle, at least, uh, before lands are settled in this, this, these colonial territories that now be then became part of the British Empire, um, there ought to be a treaty or some kind of agreement with the indigenous peoples possessing those lands and that, that those arrangements should be in a public forum um, uh, held by the governor of the colony, the colonial territory. So this is a piece of, uh, of legislation that really applied throughout British North America and, and uh, was meant to apply in all of the colonies. So the, there, there is a, a good illustration of the importance of the governors of, or governor general of a colony in terms of treating with indigenous people. These governors played a pretty important role in managing the relations with indigenous people 
And I think it's important to remember that the power imbalance that later developed with the massive influx of settlers in the 19th century wasn't there in quite the same way in, in the early days. There was much more of a, a balance of power and without engaging with indigenous nations through a tree making process, um, uh, those governors would have had a hard time go governing, to be honest. Um, so the treaty relationship uh, in the in those in the late nineteenth, late eighteenth century, early nineteenth century was much more of a an alliance, um, a partnership uh, than than some of the later. Uh, land acquisition treaties were. Um, and for Indigenous people in Canada today, those treaties of alliance, um, partnership, friendship, peace, um, an example would be the two-row wampum uh, treaty relationship or the covenant chain treaty relationship with the Crown are really important today. They, they remain important and um, and that connection with the crown to those, uh, through those relationships is something that they, uh, not all indigenous people, but certain, certainly though the indigenous people in, in our area here where Queens is located, the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people uh, remains very important. So as history has progressed, um, a lot of people have mentioned that yes, the governor general has a, um, a large amount of power. However, it's become more of a symbolic uh, role that oftentimes um, is just, you know, agreeing with what the legislator has come forward with. And, um, you know, like you said earlier, it's, it's about the approval of the prime minister as well. And so, we know that this position, because it represents the crown, also is a position that also can represent colonialism. And traditionally, uh, the position is symbolic, and that's something Trudeau has been critiqued of um, again and again in relation to uh, Indigenous relations. So do you think that this is a, uh, a more symbolic thing? Or do you think that um, Mary Simon being appointed as the governor general um, is actually a way for indigenous resistance to occur within the Canadian state? Right, uh, what a very fascinating question. And um, you know, I don't know that I can answer it fully. Um, I can offer some observations and, and maybe speculation. Mm -hmm. um, That'd be great. And I'll do it, and I, I should just acknowledge that I do it from the perspective of somebody who is not Indigenous, um, and and and, uh, and also somebody sort of trained in in the common law legal tradition rather than the Indigenous one of the Indigenous legal traditions, and. Um, you know, when we think about the legacies of colonialism, when in here in the law school, we have to live with those every day because the structure of our legal system and our constitutional arrangements were all shaped during the directly during the colonial era. So, although Canada 
ceased to be a colony um, of the British Empire in the early 20th century, um, it doesn't follow that colonialism ceased to exist in Canada. Uh, we, uh, we address those, I, I think, as a country we're coming to grips right at this moment in, in our time in a very, um, uh, a very real way with, with the ways in which colonialism continues to shape our society, and that would include our legal arrangements too. Um, so, so back to your question, um, is this symbolic or could it be a moment of change? Um, I, I might just start by saying that the role of the Crown and therefore the Governor General in Canada has always been a dynamic one. Uh, it, it evolves over time. So, you know, the judges in Canada will often say that our constitution is a living tree. Um, it, it grows through judicial interpretation. That would be one way that it, it develops or evolves over time. Another way that our constitution, maybe the main way really that it has evolved is through uh, not through law so much as extra-legal constitutional conventions or practices or customs. So the whole idea that the crown or the governor representing the crown, um, for the most part, simply obeys the prime minister or provincially a premier, um, if it's the lieutenant governor we're talking about provincially, evolved um, as a, as a way of, of ensuring democracy in, in colonies like Canada, um, or at least the beginning, the beginnings of democracy. Um, and these aren't mandated legally, these rules, they're, they're just customary rules that evolve over time. So I, I mentioned that um, because I think it, it's possible that these conventions can still evolve and, sh and maybe should evolve over time. Uh, the one way in which uh, these really archaic constitutional arrangements or rules, um, the very idea of a hereditary monarch, uh, could, uh, could make sense in a modern world today is, is if these rules um, and conventions evolve. So I think we're at this point in time where we don't know. Maybe this is time. I mean, some people would just say, forget about evolution. <laughs> Let's just um, get rid of the crown. How about that? That would be one way of decolonizing very quickly. Those calls for that kind of change may become more frequent uh, in, in the years to come. Um, in the meantime, though, I think there's room for, for evolution as well, for gradual change. And this is where somebody like Mary Simon might be um, very important to, to, the, to at least opening up conversations in Canada about how we might reconceive of our arrangements in a decolonized way, how we might even reconceive of the crown and therefore the governor general in a decolonized sense. And, by the, you know, by the way, decolonization means a lot of different things to different people. Of course, it's a complex idea, but I think it's at the core of what reconciliation is. And we also think about reconciliation in Canada in different ways. It's a contested concept, of course, um, but the, the general or abstract principles involved, uh, I think we, 
we as a country are all committed to. So, um, so back to the idea of the governor general as a mere symbol. But I, I would say that the, the office is still central and indeed very much central to constitutional arrangements in Canada. And uh, it's far more than a mere symbolic office. It's um, the way in which the, the, the office holder, the person in that position conducts themselves will have substantive implications for, uh, um, for a lot of things. If, if in the next election, uh, no party wins a majority, uh, Mary Simon may have to select the next prime minister, and it may not be on the advice of the existing prime minister. Who knows? She may say, well, if it's, if it's the present prime minister, Justin Trudeau, asking, she might say to him, uh, given the results of the election, I don't believe you can command the majority of the House of Commons. I'll ask somebody else to form a government. And uh, so she will have, she may have, depending on the circumstances, a central role to play in the formation of the next government of Canada. And that's just an example, I think. But back to decolonization and your question. Um, yeah, I, I think she could. I mean, a lot of it depends on her. This is where the, the personal, the person in the office may have considerable influence. She, um, she may not have the ability because of constitutional convention to advocate for particular political um, objectives in a in a in a uh, you know in a partisan way, but she can set the tone for the way in which uh, the political actors in Canada engage with issues, and on a matter of relating to a, a broad constitutional principle like reconciliation. Um, that you know there's a there are opportunities for her to influence the way in which that discourse unfolds that will require a lot of skill uh, on her part if if it's to be done well and um, it will be very fascinating to watch her to see um, how she navigates this really delicate position it's it's um it's a role with a lot of legal power that can only be exercised in a manner which is not in a nonpartisan way and that respects the principles of democracy in Canada. Um, and as a result, um, the influence that she will have will often be indirect uh, and at a level of principle rather than particular, um, you know, you know po contra po politi political controversies. Uh, and as an Indigenous person, who has in her career advocated strongly uh, as a political actor on behalf of Indigenous people. It will be really interesting to see how she makes the adjustment to an office where the influence is still incredible, but perhaps something, uh, a kind of influence that will have to be exercised in a slightly different fashion, in a more indirect fashion. Yeah, and so if she's able to follow these um, democratic rules that are um, in our government system, is there a way that Mary could Simon could actively um, decolonize her position and have that long-term um, 
impact on the position of the governor general to ensure that Indigenous people are able to feel safer uh, in the long term within Canada? Yeah, yes. So a, a great question. And I don't know that I can uh, um, answer that question really in, in, in detail. Um, so you have this image of the crown, which the, you know, a king or queen, a hereditary monarch, which is incredibly European <laughs> to face it. Um, and it, it, you know, it's the associations with empire are undeniable. Um, the crown, this is what the courts say in, in Canada, the crown claims sovereignty over Canada. And even the language of the case law on um, constitutional rights for Aboriginal people in Canada are really objectionable to Indigenous people today. So we have in the leading cases statements like from the judges, the purpose of Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982, which protects Aboriginal and treaty rights under our Constitution, is to reconcile the existence or pre-existence of Indigenous people with the sovereignty of the Crown, um, which sets up the problem in a problematic way, to be honest, um, since Indigenous people uh, contest the established notions of Crown sovereignty. So the crown has come to represent us a form of sovereign power, which many indigenous people in Canada simply don't accept. Um, so to have as the crown's representative an indigenous people who in her own career has challenged crown sovereignty um, is really quite an interesting phenomenon. It is going to be absolutely fascinating to see how she um, she manages this. And, and so what, I, I mean, one way would be for us to start, well, well, to stop thinking about the crown uh, or crown sovereignty as we've done in the past and and begin to open up, again, a conversation maybe about how we might imagine the crown in a manner that would be acceptable to Indigenous people. And, and, and one way of doing that would be to go back and ask um, Indigenous people, what is that relationship you have with the crown through treaties? What is your view of that person on the other side of the relationship, the king or queen? Um, what is the Indigenous legal conception of the Queen? The Crown becomes part of a network of, um, of kinship relationships. And for many Indigenous people, including the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe of this area, uh, political order is or was achieved traditionally through, um, through establishing uh, relationships of spiritual kinship between clan and extended clan units. Um, and once you see the relation, the treaty relationship as an, an effort by Indigenous people to include the crown in that network of spiritual kinship, then all of a sudden the crown stops being a sovereign. I mean, there's European sovereignty has nothing to do with this treaty relationship. 
um, and starts to become uh, part of, a, of a system of governance, which is very, very unlike European systems of governance. The crown becomes the subject of legal duties um, and obligations. Uh, the crown has to protect Indigenous people. Um, there's a, an element of care and trust in the relationship. So this is I, I'm, I'm this is a vastly simplistic summary of something that I'm really not entitled to speak about, which is the Indigenous perspective on the crown. But again, from my readings, it seems like something like this, in a, in, in, again, I'm being very simplistic, something like this would inform Indigenous perspectives of, of the crown. And, um, and if we started, the rest of us started to think of the crown in this different light, then we'd have to start challenging, not just the office of the crown or the office of the governor general, but the very essence of sovereignty in the Canadian state and what it means for Canada to say that it's sovereign over Canada or the territories of Canada. And that notion of sovereignty is really, again, yet another contested concept, but um, uh, maybe there's a much more pluralistic view of sovereignty out there that would be demanded um, and flow from, from this. Uh, Again, I, I just think having an Indigenous Governor General might might be a, a, opening a door on these kinds of conversations. And so I think already we are making steps uh, in the right direction if this is something that, you know, is all over the news and we recognize, not only Canadians are recognizing how important this is, but even... Um, a lot of magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times, have even been writing about this important event. So it is raising, uh, it is turning heads. So I think it must be doing something right if we're able to get some international coverage from this important event. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, just um, yeah, I've noticed as well, as you have and many others, that um, it already I think that this conversation has begun and um, and and Mary Simon hasn't even been officially um, installed in her office yet I believe that happens on July 26th so uh, I think that there are some positive indications there and and for you know uh, for in, for indigenous peoples and and non-indigenous peoples in Canada it's maybe a sign of good news at a time when we're just gripped as a country and the tragic, you know, the tragic news of, uh, of discoveries of unmarked graves, for example, um, and the, the, the realization of just how uh, traumatic the residential school policy has been uh, for Indigenous communities in Canada. And so it seems like we're at a very historic moment um, with her being appointed as Canada's first Indigenous Governor General, it seems like we have a moment where there could be some form of Indigenous resistance here and a decolonization um, that's within her office, but there also seems to be a possibility for um, another side for it to go, but it sounds, um, I agree with you that um, based on what I have seen about Mary Simon, it seems like she's got a fire in her that is 
you know, is not going to give up so easily. And so um, I really hope that Mary Simon can, um, you know, figure a way out to act within her legal right as the governor general, while also still being able to push forward um, with the protection of indigenous peoples and their land. So um, any final conclusions, Mark, before we finish up? Well, I, I would just like to say um, that, that I agree with you on your, your summing up. I think um, there, you know, the, the, again, constitutional um, arrangements in Canada have I've always been supple and um, you know, a lot of the constitution is unwritten uh, and it really falls to people who are committed to the country to act in principled ways. And if sometimes that tests the orthodoxy, that's not such a bad thing. Um, in fact, unless that happens, uh, the rigidity of the constitution will just become unbearable and a direct and more formal change will will be inevitable anyway. So, um, you know, it's, it's just going to be a fascinating time for us to watch uh, and see how this Office of Governor General may in fact become a lot more important and significant and meaningful uh, in the years to come. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Mark, for talking to me today and providing your expertise on this topic. It was so great to chat with you and learn a little bit about uh, the office of the Governor General, the Crown, and decolonization and this idea of pluralist, pluralistic sovereignty. Well, it's been my pleasure, Sadie. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been uh, um, a real pleasure to, to chat with you today. Thank you for listening to The Scoop, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Thank you.